If you have your Bibles, I hope by now you found Psalm chapter 24, and I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. I realized as I was preparing and planning to preach this that I haven't said much about the Selah recently. That is a part of the original text and why I read them. And I do try to give a pause and try not to make it too awkwardly long. But some people think it means to pause for reflection. Some believe it could have meant some sort of musical interlude. Um, But it is a part of the original text, and that's why we read them in the Psalms. Okay, Psalm chapter 24 divides neatly into three parts. But the universal theme today is the dominion of the Lord. He is king over all things. And we've seen that some in even the songs that we've sung today. Now, in conjunction with declaring that the Lord is king over all the earth, it also describes the type of person, the worshiper, who may dwell in the king's presence and dwell in his holy midst. So I want to break down these three parts of the psalm for you and make application for it today. First of all, as we look at verses 1 and 2, I want you to consider with me that this is the Lord's earth. The planet we dwell on is the Lord's earth. In Hebrew, verse 1 begins emphatically with Yahweh's name. To Yahweh the earth belongs and the fullness therein. We could spend literally the rest of the message today on just that one part of verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It has massive implications. I have time to share just three with you this morning. Three implications from this being the Lord's earth. First of all, we are created We are created. This world belongs to God, and everything in it is owing of its life to Him. At our youth camp, the youth pastor, uh, the camp pastor, Kevin Jones, was asked the question from one of the students, What is God teaching you recently? And his answer was profound. He said, I am being reminded that I am dust. 
I am dust. We are all created beings. Presidents and popes, generals and movie stars, athletes, celebrities, moms, dads, children. It doesn't matter who you are, where you live, or your status in the eyes of men. You are a creature made of dust. The air we breathe belongs to God. This is his world, and we are his creatures. The fact that he created us has, again, worldview, massive worldview implications. Sinful humanity has always made an effort to suppress the truth of God as creator with the lie. Denying the existence of God and denying our status as creatures is a foundation of secularism, materialism, and the expressive individualism that we see rampant all around us. If a person acknowledges that this is the Lord's earth, it only follows that we must obey the Lord's rules and follow his rules for his creation. And to put a much finer point to it, if the Lord did form us in our mother's womb and knit us together in our, in, in our inward parts, as Psalm 139 described in our Bible reading plan this week, then it follows he designed us male and female. The external God-given gift of gender and sex helps us make sense of our own inward expression and not the other way around. Contending for a biblical worldview and the fact that we are God's creatures is something that we must all commit ourselves to in our homes, in our church, and with those we disciple, or we will fall prey to the cultural pressure to abandon any form of external norm, any sort of deontological reality, go look that up, to which we must conform. The earth is the Lord's. But a second implication of this being the Lord's earth is that we are recipients. Not merely are we creatures, we receive everything we have. Verse 2 implies that the Lord has even given us, out of his love and care for his creation, a place for us to put our two feet. The land, this tierra firma that your two feet are feeling underneath you, God gave a habitable place for his highest pinnacle of creation to dwell. He established it on the seas, out of the chaos and away from the chaos of floods and the seas. I was reading this morning, I think it was in Jeremiah, about how the boundaries of the ocean, the waves keep trying and they can't quite make it up the shore, that God has given us a place to dwell we have received in his love. We are recipients of everything we have because nothing ultimately belongs to us. The New Testament authors will go on to make application from verse 1. In Paul's writings especially, we hear him quote, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof when he's making arguments about things like meat sacrificed to idols. In other words, the argument goes, even if something uh, created like meat is given over to devotion to evil or to misuse by another one of the inhabitants of the Lord's earth, it makes no difference to the Christian at all because for one thing, the idol is nothing. It was created as well carved out of something. And another thing, the God is just the creation of the imagination of a creature. 
The very thing that's being devoted to is part of the Lord's earth as well. We know that ultimately the meat that was sacrificed to an idol belongs to the Lord, and so Christians can receive it with thankfulness, no matter how it may have been misused prior to our reception of it. That's the way Paul uses Psalm 24, verse 1 in his argument. We receive that as from the Lord himself. Now, that sounds rather barbaric and ancient to our modern ears, like meat and idols and all this. Like, okay, what about today? Well, I would argue a couple thousand years later, it's still extraordinarily relevant because your Burger King chicken sandwich was devoted to advancing the sexual revolution and an LGBTQ agenda. The Starbucks coffee you drank this morning takes its corporate earnings and gives it over to gods that are no gods at all. Friends, we are surrounded by those who would devote things that belong to the Lord to wicked and ungodly ideologies and practices. And yet this psalm says, those espresso beans belong to God. Praise his holy name. I am so thankful that I can receive espresso with thanksgiving and know that it belongs to the Lord and to no one else. I praise God for this. We are recipients because this is the Lord's earth. And then thirdly, by way of implication from this being the Lord's earth, we are stewards. We are stewards. This follows from being creatures and recipients. If all that we have, we have received, then we are stewards of everything that we have because we've been given dominion over it as recipients. We must never fail to remember the food we eat The clothes we wear and the earth we inhabit belongs to God. Christians should acknowledge the provision of God at every meal. It shouldn't be a rote ritual, but something we consider as we receive food with thanksgiving that God has provided it for us. Christians should also care deeply about the environment. We should care about this earth that the Lord has given us to inhabit After all, whatever we claim to possess is only ours on loan from the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine. Charles Spurgeon put it perhaps more poignantly when he said, quote, man lives upon the earth and he parcels out his soil among his mimic kings and autocrats by dirt, right? But the earth is not man's. He is a tenant at will, a leaseholder upon most precarious tenure, liable to instantaneous ejectment. The great landowner and the true proprietor holds his court above the clouds and laughs at the title deeds of the worms of dust. It should never astonish us that the Lord would ask us to give cheerfully back a portion of those things he's given to us, What should amaze us is that he lets us keep any at all. The earth is the Lord's, and we are stewards of it all. Again, as I said, we could go on, but there are eight more verses to cover. So in the second place, this psalm teaches us that the place where the Lord dwells in holiness is the Lord's hill. It only follows that if the earth is the Lord's, then the place where the Lord might choose to make his dwelling on earth 
is his too. And thus it is called in verse 3 of Psalm 24, the hill of the Lord. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? It is the Lord's hill. Jerusalem was the place where the Ark of the Covenant that symbolized the Lord's holy presence came to rest. Jerusalem became symbolic of the Lord's very presence on earth, and thus it is called his holy hill. Many believe that the background of this psalm was the bringing of the ark from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. But the important thing for us to note as we are considering the Lord's hill is that it is a holy hill. God is holy. He is set apart by virtue of his being creator and us being creatures, we know him to be transcendent. But he is also completely transcendent in his character as well. Did you notice the questions in verse 4? The psalmist asks, Who can possibly commune with the Lord on his holy hill? Well, he answers, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Now, if this reminds you of something, it might be recalling to your mind Psalm 15, which shares a lot of similarities with Psalm chapter 24. And I don't have time today to dive deeply into the comparison, but I want to point out that there are some commentators who believe that they bookend a section of the psalm. So if you're thinking of a high-level view, think of this as serving as a bookend of 15 through 24, and the argument would go, 1 and 2, Psalms 1 and 2, serve as an introduction to the whole Psalter. Then Psalms 3 through 14 demonstrate that the Messiah will be rejected by men. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Begins Psalm 3. So the Messiah being rejected is 3 through 14, and the Messiah being accepted by God is 15 through 24. You think of things like... um, He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. He answers you when you call to him. The Lord has not forsaken his anointed one in Psalm 22. All of these psalms demonstrate that the Messiah, though rejected by men in 15 through 24, will be accepted by God. So that's something interesting, maybe worth further study on your own, but I thought I would share with you this morning. But more to the point for today, did you get the sense while you were reading Psalm 24 verse 4? But the answer is nobody. Like our song today, you know, is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? I ask myself this question as I'm studying for this psalm to prepare to preach to you, feeling like though I strive for clean hands and a pure heart, I fail at times. None of us lives up to the standard of holiness that our God requires. This is, of course, is a core component of the gospel message. When compared to God's holy standards, none of us measure up. All have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. So who may ascend the Lord's holy hill? Not any one of us in our own merits or our own righteousness. Only one man has ever lived in such a way that the gates would open up and let him ascend and dwell in eternal communion with the Lord of the universe, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus the Christ. But even in this psalm, there is evidence of the grace of the gospel. Because as one commentator put it, those who ascend the hill of the Lord do not ascend as givers, but as receivers. They do not wear their own merits, but a righteousness that is received. Do you see that in verse 5? He will receive a blessing from the Lord, and he will receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, before we turn to the third section, I was going to share a more in-depth look at verse 6 and the footnote translation in the ESV and the CSB. If you have a King James Version or a New King James or a New American Standard Bible, uh, those translations are uh, based more on the Masoretic text and several other Hebrew manuscripts, and it's not a bad translation. And that's why the ESV and CSB footnote, it could be an alternate translation in verse 6. I will share with you what I think. I'm just kind of skimming the top of the lot of research. I have some of the thoughts of what I studied on verse 6. If you want to talk about them in the foyer later or something, we can do that. But here's what I think the essence of the KJV and other translations is. The New English translation, the net, gives a good, uh, I think, translation to follow. It says that the purity mentioned in verses 4, in verse 4, such purity characterizes the people who seek God's favor, Jacob's descendants who pray to him. I think that brings into modern English what the essence of the alternate translation describes. In other words, the type of people who pray and seek God's face are characterized by purity, and they are true Jacob. They are true Israel. They are the ones who long to see God face to face. And think of all the import of the story of Jacob that comes in with the word blessing. He will receive a blessing from the Lord. What did Jacob do? He wrestled face to face with God until he received the blessing in Peniel. And so the idea is that the, the characteristics of a person that seeks God's face is that he receives this blessing from the Lord and he is characterized by the purity described. So let me give you my summary of verses 3 through 6. It reminds us in verse 3 through 6, not only is this the Lord's earth, but Jerusalem was the Lord's hill. And those who will dwell with God, who are the true descendants of Jacob, are characterized by purity and holiness, all of which is received as a blessing from God. This leads us to the third and final portion of the psalm, verses 7 through 10, where we see the Lord's entry. Or perhaps I should have called it the Lord's entries, because briefly I want to share with you five entries of the Lord. Are you ready for this? You might have suspected the first entry is the Lord symbolized his presence on earth, symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant being brought into Jerusalem. In the original context, that is the Lord's entry into Jerusalem. And so this psalm would have been perhaps composed for that occasion. And what would have happened is a herald would have gone before the 
the pilgrimage of the people of God as they're carrying the ark of God into Jerusalem. And he would have shouted at the gates of Jerusalem, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then the, the guy on the gates is over here. Who is this king of glory? You know, like who dares to enter? And then back here you have the group or maybe the herald saying, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty and battle. And then it repeats again with the the second iteration of that in verses 9 and 10. So it's kind of performative, uh, majestic. It's a majestic and grand entrance for the great and mighty king of glory. So that's one entry. But it gets only more awesome to me as this psalm finds further fulfillment. You see, a second entry that took place of the Lord, the King of Glory, into Jerusalem happened on Palm Sunday. Jerusalem, as Jesus is riding on a donkey and about to enter into the gates, do you know what was being recited in the temple? Rabbinical sources tell us that according to the Jewish liturgy, every first day of the week, Psalm 24 was to be recited in the temple. So it's totally conceivable to think that while Jesus was entering, ironically, the priests that would stir up the crowds to crucify the king of glory were saying, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift up, O ancient doors, so the king of glory can come in. It's amazing. The second entry of the Lord into Jerusalem. But I said there were five. Okay, entries three and four have to do with how Christians have interpreted and understood this psalm Christologically. That is to say, as it refers to Christ and his total fulfillment of it. Charles Spurgeon called this psalm the psalm of the ascension. When Jesus ascended into heaven and was received therein. Now, it may help for a moment for us to step back and think about how the writer of Hebrews talks about worship to kind of catch the import of what we're saying here. The writer of Hebrews uh, says, instead of worshiping God in light of the terrifying picture of Mount Sinai in chapter 12, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. When we gather to worship, we don't worship in the mindset of the old covenant and the terrifying picture of the Ten Commandments and thunder and lightning and death to animals that approach the mountain and fright. We worship as though we are in heaven, in the heavenly Jerusalem, with innumerable angels gathering in a feast and to an assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so the picture of heaven is the picture of the heavenly Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem where Jesus himself now dwells. The place where God dwells in his holiness is heaven, Especially when we consider from a new covenant uh, perspective where the temple was destroyed and the, the symbol of the presence of God on earth no longer exists. Jesus is the glory of God. He is the symbol of his presence. And he is now in heaven at the right hand of God. So the mount which the true king of glory then approached is heavenly Mount Zion. 
And the gates that were heralded to be opened were the heavenly gates. They swung wide and admitted the king of glory to enter heaven. He, after all, is the only one with clean hands and a pure heart. He is the true Israelite who obeyed the father. And on the basis of his righteous life, his obedience, he was permitted to enter heaven as the victorious king of kings. You see this in verse 8? Who is this king of glory ascending to the throne of God, to his heavenly dwelling? Who is he? He's the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Singular, one dude. The Lord of all the universe is entering, and he is a warrior. He has fought a battle. He fought alone the fight against temptation and sin and Satan, and he won. He did it alone. He enters as the Lord mighty in battle. But the exchange is repeated in verses 9 and 10, isn't it? James Johnson asks the question, why are the gates asked to lift up their heads a second time? Didn't they open the first time? Now this could have been, he says, part of the poetry or the ceremony of the occasion, or it may be hinting that the king of glory will enter heavenly Zion twice. The king of glory will enter heavenly Zion twice. The first time he entered as the great king, the shout out that he himself was mighty in battle. He defeated the enemies at the cross. But notice the second time, the answer in verse 10 is different than the answer in verse 8. The shout back the second time is, who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And the hosts are his armies. So it seems to give a picture of Jesus as a great king with rank upon rank of warriors behind him. And the second shout in verse 10 identifies him as leading his people into heaven. Revelation 19.14 describes Jesus at the end of time. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse on white horses. So this second shout seems to hint that the king will ride up to the gates of Zion, the heavenly city, a second time, this time with hosts with him, a crowd of his saints following him, victorious from the battle. Brothers and sisters, if our faith is in Christ, we will join the army of the Lord. We'll enter in with the Lord of hosts to the holy hill of New Jerusalem, and we will follow on his coattails and dressed in robes of his righteousness, and we will dwell forever with him and commune face to face with God himself. And that's good stuff. The Lord of hosts, the fourth entry. So there's four. What about the fifth? The fifth entry is an appeal. From the depths of my soul to your soul's gates. You, ma'am. You, sir. Lift up your heads, O you gates. O sinner, would you lift up the gate to your heart and life and let the King of glory enter in? We've discussed how this psalm could make you think that none of us would ever measure up to having the clean hands and pure heart required to dwell eternally with God, and that would be true. But this psalm also beckons us to look to Christ, 
who already climbed to the holy hill. He entered heaven as a forerunner of all those who will trust in him. And did you hear me tell the Christians in this room how we will enter heaven? On his coattails, following the Lord of hosts. We will enter heaven dressed in his righteousness, of his robes of righteousness alone. So I want you to invite the king of glory in and leave the work of the character described in this psalm that characterizes the purity of those who follow him to the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible teaches us that the Spirit will create in us a new heart and he will cause us to walk in his rules and his statutes. That's the promise of the new covenant. Faith in Jesus is a work of the Spirit. And if he begins a work, he will complete it. How can I be so sure about that? Because when you open up the gates of your heart, you are not letting in an ineffective Savior. You're letting in the King of glory. There's no such thing as receiving Jesus as Savior and not Lord. He is the King of glory. It's his earth, his hill, his righteousness, his blessing, and you will become his child. And if you are truly his, Scripture makes clear that you will be conformed into his likeness. So lift up your heads, O gates, and may the doors of your heart be lifted up for this fifth and most critical entry to your soul. Would you lift them up that the King of glory may come in? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that all across the room there are sinners here today that never thought of themselves worthy of your grace that would receive grace upon grace in Jesus Christ. The Bible says he came full of grace and truth. Lord, Scripture also tells us that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were made, and in him all things hold together. The earth is the Lord's, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We know the second person of the Trinity and the third person of the Trinity were all there in creation. All of this belongs to you, Lord. We belong body and soul, life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ, if our faith and trust is in him. Lord, I pray that you would call sinners to repentance, that they would be encouraged by the truth that you will transform their lives, that you will give them the righteousness that they need. We will receive righteousness, the psalmist says, from the Lord. We will receive a blessing from God. So Lord, I pray that people would do business with you, Lord, that they would wrestle with you in a way until they walk away today having received the blessing of righteousness from Christ. Father, we thank you that in your wise plan you sent the Son, that Jesus was obedient to the point of death and he died on the cross for sins and that he rose again as the victorious Lord, strong and mighty. 
Thank you that the battle belongs to him. Lord, we thank you that we will join his armies at the last day when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ rise and we who remain will meet him in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord, his hosts, his armies, fighting to exalt the King of kings and Lord of lords over all his creation. Father, we thank you for the promise of new Jerusalem, new heavens and a new earth. We thank you for the word in Hebrews that reminds us that even now we worship in a very real way with the brush of angels' wings around us and festal gatherings of angels gathered together in heavenly praise of who you are. And we know the angels' cry is holy, holy, holy. Lord, I pray that we would join that cry in the way that we sing, the way that we pray, but most importantly, the way that we live. That we as believers here at Leonardtown Baptist would be characterized by the kind of purity of true descendants of Jacob. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.